previously on 51st. We took an up-close look at the push for D.C. statehood. I think more and more D.C. residents are fired up about it. We have to educate Americans that, hey, we're just like you, but we're the only people in the free world whose citizens in their capital city can't vote. And we heard from young advocates trying to educate people across the country about D.C. We went there, we had on our little shirts, and we just started talking to people. And it wasn't just the candidates. We would talk to people there, you know, local people from Iowa, just explaining to them what's going on. I'm in D.C. But statehood is not something that everyone wants. Republicans are against it because it'll likely add Democrats to Congress. Some say statehood violates the U.S. Constitution. And others think combining D.C. with Maryland is an easier path. Well, the technical name of the concept is retrocession, but we could also call it falling back or reunification. I'm Michaela Lefrac. This time on 51st, we're going to step away from Capitol Hill and big politics. We're going to hear how, for some D.C. residents, the way the city's set up has drastically altered the course of their lives. And we're starting with the prison system. Gray, 37 years old, tall guy with expressive eyebrows and a laugh that sounds like crinkling paper. <laughs> we meet just off DC's U Street corridor at the offices of a nonprofit that works with DC residents in and out of prison. Gray's been working there since he got out of prison last year. He agrees to tell me his story. It's coronavirus times, so we're sitting six feet apart and we're wearing masks, which is why he might sound a little muffled. I don't have any problems in, in, in being as transparent as possible. Gray tells me when he was 19 years old, he shot and killed a man during a carjacking and robbery. Gray was convicted of second-degree murder. He spent the next 17 years in prison. And here's the thing. Unlike the 50 states, D.C. doesn't have its own prison. Instead, Washingtonians go straight into the federal prison system. They're put in institutions across the country. Here's what that means for Gray. Not only would he spend all of his 20s and most of his 30s in prison, but he would be hundreds of miles from home. His family would barely be able to visit. First, Gray was sent to Rivers Correctional Institution down in North Carolina, a little under four hours from D.C. by car. When he got there, he was assigned a number. Prison has an uncanny way of stripping away your identity and giving you a number for your identity. You know, so I'm just inmate 34778007. The last three digits, 007, marked him as a Washingtonian. D.C. inmates usually have a number that ends with 007 or 016. The only camaraderie that we have coming through the door is just your fellow uh, brother. That's a 007 or 016. 
Things were okay in North Carolina. There were a lot of other D.C. residents in prison with him. But after getting into a fight, he got sent to a prison in Kentucky. And that's where things got really bad. He didn't have anything in common with most of the people he was locked up with. They didn't grow up in the same place or follow the same sports teams or know the same neighborhoods and towns. He tried to stick close to his fellow 007s and 016s. This line of, oh, this row of sales might be for D.C., this row of sales might be for Hispanics, and they do that to try to keep the tension down. Even worse, he was so far away from his family. It would have been a nearly eight-hour drive one way for his mom to visit Kentucky. She had other kids to take care of then, and she couldn't do it. It was a time span, you know, that was about like eight to nine years where I wasn't even able to see my mother because it was, it was just extremely too far. Gray describes this period in a really visceral way. He says it felt like his umbilical cord was being cut off. That experience there, being so far away from, from my family and, and knowing that they can't come and see me, like, that, now that's, that's a different feeling. From my family's perspective, it just was like, you know, a financial thing. They just couldn't do it. But, you know, from, from my perspective, it's like, just being in that environment and knowing that, you know, your family support is like zero to none, it, it, make you, it made me grow up. This arrangement, putting Washingtonians into federal prisons across the country, was created more than 20 years ago, during D.C.'s financial crisis in the mid-1990s. Gray didn't have to go as far as Washington State or California like some people, but he did spend a lot of time in Kentucky and West Virginia, rural places where most of the corrections officers were white and had totally different life experiences than he did. He says that 007 number he was assigned made him a target. The officers, once they see, like, oh, they look through their paperwork and say, oh, okay, oh, we got another 007 here, we got another 016 here. Oh, yeah, we know what y'all is. Y'all just a bunch of troublemakers. Grace says it felt like the guards were from a different planet, a hostile one. They might only had one black person that went to their high school. You know what I mean? It's probably no black people in their town at all. When we're out there in the feds, like, it, it puts us back to, like, the 30s. If you want to bring it up a little bit, maybe the 50s. The stigma, the prejudgment of just not black people in general, but 007s. So it's like, we're the, we're the worst of the worst. This is a documented problem. Gray served part of his sentence at Hazleton, a prison in West Virginia about three and a half hours from D.C. An independent agency that monitors D.C. residents incarcerated in federal institutions did a study of Hazleton four years ago. The majority of incarcerated D.C. residents there reported staff harassment, having their visitors turned away, and receiving fewer employment opportunities than incarcerated people from other states. And a quick warning, this next story from Gray includes offensive language. When I was in West Virginia, I mean, so many different situations happened. But I remember when Obama became president. So, you know, that was, that was a good day for a lot of people. 
So, you know, you got people coming out of the child hall and they just, you know, shouting and praising and just like, Obama, Obama, you know what I mean? And then the, the, the white lieutenants is like, y'all niggas better shut that shit up. They inciting a racial riot. And so basically, like, in the federal system, we are orphan child. And that's pretty much how we get treated. You know, like an unwanted stepkid. Because D.C. has a different prison system than the states, its incarcerated residents suffer when they're locked up far away from family and friends. Losing those ties affects people long after they finish serving their sentences. I spoke about this with Carl Racine, D.C.'s attorney general and a former public defender. We know that the number one factor in regards to a returning citizen's ability to reintegrate successfully into back into his or her community is the maintenance of close ties with community, family, and other support groups. So why are Washingtonians convicted of felonies sent so far from home? Like I said, the city's prison system totally shifted in the 90s during the control board era. The federal government took over a bunch of major agencies in D.C.'s criminal justice system. The goal was to help get the city out of a financial crisis. The district still runs its own jail for people serving misdemeanor sentences or awaiting trials. But that's it. So what D.C. got was a clean budget. What we lost was local autonomy over important and substantial agencies that play a critical role in the criminal justice system. So in hindsight, do you think that trade was worth it? Well, I say hindsight is 2020. D.C.'s entire criminal justice system is different from the ones in the 50 states. Here's another example. If you live in, say, Louisiana, you'd elect a state attorney to prosecute felonies. If the attorney doesn't do a good job, you can vote him or her out of office. But D.C. doesn't get to do that. Instead, the president of the United States appoints an attorney to prosecute crime here. It's the only U.S. attorney in the country who prosecutes local in addition to federal crimes. This means D.C.'s residents don't have any recourse. They can't vote someone out of office if they disagree with how they're prosecuting felonies. This has real-world effects. Last year, D.C. saw a record number of reported hate crimes. But hate crime prosecutions were at a 10-year low because the appointed U.S. attorney for D.C. wasn't pursuing those cases. D.C. right now on pace to surpass last year's record number of hate crimes. But as Fox 5's Evan Lambert explains, prosecutions are at a decade-long low. We spoke to U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Jesse K. Liu, on the same day the D.C. Council held a hearing to address the discrepancy between hate crimes arrests and those who end up being charged with a hate crime. Something to note. We've seen in recent years the community, D.C. residents, be upset, irate, want change around how the local prosecutor's office functions. We saw this in regards to the absence of hate crime prosecutions over the last several years. That's a really, really big deal. If 
if D.C. becomes a state, it would gain control over its criminal justice system. But that control would come with a hefty price tag. I asked WAMU reporter Martin Ostermule about this. He's been following D.C.'s statehood movement and its criminal justice system for years, and he knows almost too much about it. The one thing that people least like to talk about when it comes to statehood is this idea of taking over its own prison system and running its own judiciary. Because right now, the court system in the district is run, run by and paid for by the federal government, and that's roughly $600 million a year. And that comes down to a prison, too. I mean, if you want to become a state and then function as a state and have your own state prison system, you have to build a state prison in theory. And where is that state prison going to go in the district? I mean, there's not a whole lot of land to begin with, but you could probably find a place. But then it's it's expensive to build a prison. It's controversial to build a prison and, you know, everything that goes with it. And then you'd, you'd be bringing in thousands of, of inmates from across the country back into the district, which is a positive. But it's just layered in all these these challenges that I think a lot of statehood advocates don't generally like to talk about. So how would we pay for this? One option is a new tax. People who work in the district but live somewhere else, like Maryland or Virginia, would pay a tax to D.C. based on the money they earn here. Lots of states do this, but D.C. is barred by Congress from creating a commuter tax. It had earned the district a lot of money, but it could also get a lot of pushback from our neighbors in Maryland and Virginia. Then there's D.C.'s cannabis industry, which we're going to talk about in the second half of this episode. For now, just know that the cannabis industry could be a big moneymaker for the city. Whatever happens, Racine says D.C. would need to be allowed to take on those costs slowly over a couple of years. I don't believe it would be fair and just to D.C. to do it in a turnkey fashion right away. A more gradual process would be fair and would allow the District of Columbia you know, to adjust its finances in a way that it could take on the burden. That extra time would have another advantage. Prison reform advocates say they don't want to just start up a traditional prison system like any other state. They want D.C. leaders to start acting now to fix the underlying inequities that land people in prison in the first place. Reforming the system could mean it might not cost as much to run it one day. Jamion Gray got out of prison in June 2019. When I walked out of the door, you know, I kissed the ground, got into the van to take you to the nearest bus stop, like the Greyhound bus stop. Mm-hmm. And uh, once once I got there, I just cried. Gray had a difficult time adjusting back to life in D.C. He was only 20 when he left, and now he's just shy of 40 years old. But he's settled now. He has a job he cares about, and he's rebuilding those ties with his family. Actually, he says he's been oddly grateful for the coronavirus pandemic because it's given him and his family the time they needed together to get to know each other again. I mean, it's an experience that I really can't even put in words. You know, I mean, it it was just, you know, suffice to say just great seeing my peoples and, you know, I mean, just interacting with them and, and just being home. You know, I really can't, I really can't even put it into words.
Coming up on 51st, the strange, strange world that is Washington, D.C.'s cannabis industry. DC is daily. DC is daily. DC is daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, DC, in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DC is daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. Hey, it's me, Michaela. Before we keep going with this episode, I just want to say a sincere thank you for listening to 51st. It's really been a labor of love over these past couple weeks. Working through the complex history of D.C.'s fight for representation takes just an incredible amount of energy, resources, and support. Here at WAMU, our work is powered by listeners just like you, who give back to keep this type of journalism coming. You can join them by taking just a few minutes to support 51st and What's With Washington with a gift. Go to wamu.org slash support what's with, and thank you. When you walk around D.C., you'll often smell a distinctive aroma wafting from people's back porches and open windows. Marijuana. Now, you'd think with how often you smell weed here, it'd be totally legal to buy, sell, and use pot. But that's not the situation. It's actually really quite odd, so buckle up. Some things are legal, like buying and selling medical marijuana. You can also grow a couple cannabis plants at your house, and you can use small amounts at home. But getting there took years. Plus, Washingtonians want to set up a full industry for marijuana, not just medical, but recreational, like Colorado has. But we're not allowed to. WAMU reporter Martin Ostermule is going to help me explain. The extent that Congress has gone through to stop D.C. from legalizing marijuana is incredible. I mean, we're talking decades worth of efforts from the Hill to stop D.C. from moving forward on decrim or legalization, which local officials have wanted to do for a while. This story starts more than 20 years ago. In 1998, Washingtonians voted to make medical cannabis legal. At the time, this was only the second place in the country that was making that move. California had done it right before us. But Congress saw the vote happen, and before anything else, they literally stopped the city from counting the votes. So for a year after the, the, the city's residents voted to legalize medical marijuana, no one knew how many people had voted in favor or against. A Republican congressman from Georgia, this guy Bob Barr, was the one leading this fight. It took nearly a year and a lawsuit to get the results published. Turns out nearly 70 percent of D.C. voters wanted to legalize medical marijuana. Barr had another plan. So then Congress just took the next step and put a a, a rider on the city's budget that for a decade basically stopped the city from implementing the program that residents had voted for. So over the course of a decade, a program that, for all intents and purposes, D.C. residents wanted could not get off the ground. That's how seriously Congress did not want weed to be legalized in the district, and they could do something about it. Remember, this is medical marijuana we're talking about. For a decade, a lot of Washingtonians, including people living with HIV-AIDS, wanted to use medical marijuana to alleviate their symptoms. The main guys who led the charge, I think, were part of, at least as, if memory serves, were members of the, of the city's gay community that, that had been hit hard by HIV-AIDS. 
And to them, this was a way, medical marijuana was a way to help people who were suffering kind of just, you know, get through some of the worst, some of the worst parts of the conditions that they, they were facing. In 2009, Democrats took control of Congress and lifted the ban for D.C. The city could finally set up medical marijuana dispensaries, which are still running today. After medical marijuana, the next step was recreational pot. People wanted to be able to buy, sell, and use it legally, just like alcohol. That's where this guy comes in. Listening to music and using cannabis is one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. Adam Eidinger, he's a longtime cannabis rights activist. He's recognizable on the streets by the floppy red hat he wears. It's kind of like a Smurf hat, but red. It's called a Phrygian hat, and it's a symbol of resistance. Wearing this hat, Eidinger has led a number of smoke-ins, where he and a bunch of activists smoke pot inside Congress. Uh, we're always, you know, there demanding representation, and um, when you don't have it, I mean, you're kind of forced into a civil disobedience scenario. It's like, well, if you're not going to pay attention to us because we don't have a vote, um, well, I guess we're, we'll resort to these tactics. He helps lead the charge to legalize recreational weed in D.C. The law was passed in 2014. Washingtonians could grow cannabis plants at home, have up to two ounces of weed, and use it at home legally. Um, the, the law will go into effect one minute after midnight. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser made herself clear the voter-approved Initiative 71 to legalize marijuana with various restrictions and conditions will become law within minutes now. But signing potential The plan was then to set up a system to sell and tax marijuana. But at that point, Congress was like, no, 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 no. We are done. D.C.'s punishment for legalization was that it can't earn money from it. Congress blocked the district from taxing the sale of recreational marijuana. But of course, that doesn't mean sales aren't happening. You can't go to a weed shop like you can in, say, Denver, but you can seek out one of the many stores with window displays full of bongs and pipes. Well, I would go to certain neighborhoods in town. I'll just say Adams Morgan, for for example, and walk the business district and and open your eyes (laughs) There are uh, storefronts that will give you clues that they actually will give you cannabis in exchange for purchasing a candle or some uh, grow grow equipment or a pipe or a bong. Um, So basically, if you buy a bong at many of the head shops in D.C., they will give you cannabis for free. Okay, so let me break this down for you. Giving a gift of weed is legal. Buying a bong or a candle is legal. But selling weed is not legal. So this is what people do instead. You can go and purchase expensive, you know, uh, uh, items like a T-shirt that costs $45 that costs $3 to $4 to make. Um, They'll sell it for $45 and you get a thumb size amount of cannabis in addition to that T-shirt. And they're not breaking the law uh, technically. Tricky, right? Obviously, though, there are a couple of problems here. For one, you might end up with a lot of bongs or T-shirts. Also, Congress's rider means that all these sales are under the table, and D.C. is missing out on all that potential tax revenue. This is not what Eidinger had imagined for D.C. 
You know, we meant this to be a stepping stone to reasonable tax and regulate where you issue enough licenses so there's a market so consumers can find a competitive market and not have a place where you have to go to a doctor to get permission to do this. DC's weed situation is a perfect example of something Martin Ostermule told me. He said he thinks there are a lot of politicians and regular Americans who think of Washington, D.C. as America's hometown. They want the nation's capital to be this model of American values. And right now, legal recreational weed isn't one of those values. If Democrats take control of both houses of Congress, they could decide to let D.C. tax and regulate cannabis. If D.C. becomes a state, Congress really wouldn't have any say at all. At this point, Eidinger is fine with either option, as long as it leads to change. I do think, though, if we were a state, we would get a better law. <laughs> I'll, put, I'll, give, I'll give that to statehood, that if we really didn't have Congress interfering with at all, we would get the law that the people here really want and not the law that we're thinking that Congress will accept. A little epilogue to this story. Remember Bob Barr, that Georgia congressman who did everything he could to keep D.C. from legalizing any kind of marijuana? Now that he's out of office, he says the government shouldn't be involved in local marijuana policies at all. The decisions should be up to each jurisdiction, he says. Funny how things change, huh? We've talked a lot in this episode about what D.C. doesn't have control over. But here's one thing it does have control over. The people who can vote. D.C. allows formerly incarcerated people to vote in elections. And as of this year, people in prison can vote too. Jamie on Gray is getting ready to vote for the first time in his life. I'm a little nervous about it, honestly. Uh, voting has, 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 has never been not even a topic of conversation in the household that I grew up in as a child, outside of the complaints. <laughs> you know what I mean? As of mid-October, he hadn't decided yet if he'd vote by mail or in person. He keeps weighing his options, going back and forth on the pros and cons. He's still a little skeptical that whoever gets elected will actually act on behalf of people like him. He says he's just been disappointed so many times before in his life. But he's also really excited to participate. I just got to exercise it. It's, you know what I mean? It's just, it's just a new experience for me. And I'm just going to embrace everything about it. <laughs> Gray tells me that going through prison made him identify more than ever as a Washingtonian. Towards the end of our two-and-a-half-hour-long conversation, he draws this kind of amazing parallel between himself in prison and the district under congressional control. In prison in general, they, they have a, a, a strange way of like stifling your voice. Like you feel like your voice doesn't matter, like you're not heard at all. So, you know, at the end of the day, just us being able to reclaim our voice, I mean, that's like the first major accomplishment. Now, what we do with our voice would just be up to us. And I understand it because I've been in the position of feeling like I wasn't heard or listened to. So I definitely get it. 
coming up on the next and final episode of 51st. What does the future hold for D.C.? And if D.C. becomes a state, what would the American flag look like? All that and more next time on 51st. 51st is produced by me, Michaela Lafrac, and senior producer Ponzi Rutch. Additional production comes from the WAMU podcast team, Ruth Tam, Patrick Ford, and Jonquilin Hill. Mike Kidd mixed this episode. Our chief content officer, Mona Cashvi, oversees all the content we make at WAMU. If you've been enjoying listening to 51st as much as we enjoy making it, please recommend the show to a friend. It really helps us out. We'll be back next week with the final episode of 51st. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.